0: Broadcasting from the Hair Saloon corporate offices, it's the Suzanne Venker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. Today on the show, we're going to talk with Christina Hoff Summers, author and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, about what became of feminism. But first, a quick announcement. In an effort to continue to provide you with incredible guests and to keep The Suzanne Venker Show commercial-free, I'm now accepting donations from listeners via Patreon. Whatever you're able to give per month, your donations will go straight to funding this mission for my podcast. And best of all, when you become a Patreon subscriber, you get great perks like free eBooks, exclusive content, and even a live Q&A with me. For information on how to become a Patreon subscriber, go to Show.com and click on Become a Patron. Christina Hoff Summers is an author and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute where she studies the politics of gender and feminism, as well as free expression, due process, and the preservation of liberty in the academy. Christina is perhaps best known for her 1994 book, Who Stole Feminism? How Women Have Betrayed Women, which was instrumental in giving a voice to those who dared to question rigid doctrines about women and men and the flawed arguments feminists make that cause a rift between them. Christina's popular podcast, FemSplainers, which she co-hosts with author Danielle Crittenden, is described as a, quote, weekly girls' night out, where Christina and Danielle dish on everything from Me Too and sex to, well, doing the dishes. Listening to Christina talk is like listening to a friend who does her homework and studies really hard before coming to the party. She counters feminist arguments and political correctness with both wit and charm. And her popular video blog, The Factual Feminist, has garnered more than 4 million views. Welcome to the show, Christina. So you've gone on the record, Christina, to say you're a feminist who doesn't like what feminism has become. In fact, all the way back in 1994, in an interview with Ben Wattenberg, you said you consider yourself a whistleblower, which is a perfect term for you, I think, because you work in the university and you see very clearly what's going on. And of course, it's much worse today than it was back then, even. Here you are talking to Bill Maher about your recent visit to Oberlin College.
1: I'm a frequent college lecturer, and when I have been lecturing for years. And usually I'd go to debate and spar with some women's studies professors because I occupy a different position in sort of uh, feminist theory. But now, these days, I go, and we don't, it's not the women's studies people, it's the students who come, the activists, to demonstrate, they set up safe rooms, I spoke at Oberlin. Safe rooms from you. From me. And I have to have bodyguards. At Oberlin, I had a a detail of police. Didn't they also have a therapy dog? Yes. Here's the thing. They weren't ther- warrant- from you because yes. you No. a, a young woman. Th- well, they had these safe rooms set up and 30 women and a <laughs> therapy dog Fled <laughs> to the safe space. I triggered a dog <laughs> I- <laughs> And I, I feel bad about the dog
0: yeah I- <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Christina! Okay, you. So I want you to tell um, my listeners, please, about your trip to Overland, and I and I'm specifically curious about how, w- at what point you could kind of tell a switchover from when, because you've been talking on college campuses for a while, and that had to be just that just had to blow you away. And I don't know if that was the first time you'd experienced anything that drastic or or what, and that's why it's got all got all that um tension or what. But you you tell us all about it.
1: It was the first time I came in, in direct contact with you know the new woke uh, version of political correctness. Before students used to just if they, they'd probably just ignore me, um, it, no one cared. basically. you'd have sort of a small audience at a college. It would be, as I said, on Del Mar, just some, basically some women's studies professors and their students and we, we'd uh, bicker. Well, now, I went to Oberlin. Well, this was in 2016. It's not recent. But when I went to Oberlin, they, it was an overflow crowd. They kept having to reschedule it for larger and larger rooms until we finally got the largest auditorium with, that accommodated the entire school, and they all came to protest me, you know, with signs and take home your internalized. You have internalized the patriarchy. Get out of here. And the first two rows were full of young women with their mouths taped shut. It was about 60 young women with their mouths taped shut. I don't know what that was about. I wish I'd taken a photo. Fortunately, someone took some pictures, so the whole thing got out on the Internet. And these were students in in a state of panic over a philosophy professor coming with a different point of view. And, yes... 30 women and a therapy dog fled to a safe room in the middle of my talk. I did trigger a dog. <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> and you would say prior to this, I mean, this just came out of nowhere. Like that would be the first time you'd even have any concept that something like that could happen.
1: In Is that right? all of my years of lecturing, I mean, I had some, sometimes a whole class would come. At Kenyon College years ago, an entire class came in with the professor with the purpose of defeating me in yeah. argument Yeah, that was fine I mean it was surprising because they were so adamant but it was fine This was, they didn't come to argue they came to protest and register their indignation that I had a different point of view than they did so, and then it happened again at Georgetown and it happened again and even worse at a law school a couple of years later, at um, this was Lewis and Clark Law School, where hecklers came in, law students, these aren't immature mm-hmm. 18, 19-year-olds, mm-hmm. these were law students, and they protested and shut me down, and then the dean had to basically end the the lecture.
0: So I have a couple questions for you about this. I have had one experience with what you just described, and it was not quite to that degree, but I don't know if you knew that I was disinvited from Williams College in 2015.
1: Yes, I I went there after you. I remember. Okay. I talked about your visit there, and it was the worst audience I ever had in my life. Not one I dodged a
0: bullet, you mean? I dodged a bullet?
1: (laughs) You dodged a bullet. They were humorless, and they were this is And this is a change. I have lectured at Williams College before. These were like Stepford students. You know, they were yeah. all, they had this sort of haunted look. Each one wanted to stand up and tell tales of how traumatized and oppressed they were. It was, I really felt like I was in a mental health facility. This was it, something very strange has is going happened. on. There's just no question
0: about it. I mean, you've referred to it, I think, in one, uh, one uh, article I saw. As being, and I agree with you, cult-like at, at this point. It's cult. It's cultish. Cult-like,
1: yes, definitely.
0: So my question to you is: Do you continue now that this, now that you've experienced this and this is happening, are you still voluntarily <laughs> going into the lion's den, or have you stepped back because you feel like it's, you know, a little counterproductive or, or whatever the case may be? What, I don't what
1: know. I, I will go if um, because I still believe that I do feel it's kind of an empress has no Mm close situation or the empress in this case is threadbare and I'm I'm going to point it out because you never know who you'll reach and I go partly often I'm invited by libertarian or conservative students and I want to give them uh, confidence and, and a good set of arguments they may not have heard I want to learn from them as well so I find it just intellectually stimulating and really important to be in touch with students. You become too detached and otherworldly if you're not trying your ideas out with, with young people. So that it's important for, to me to do that. The third thing is even people who dislike me, uh, and let's say they are a little carried away with, uh, at this point I see it as a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. you know so you can, it's this totalizing theory of, of oppression and domination and all is explained in terms of power seeking power maintaining power and privilege in this matrix of oppression it's it's complete madness but they believe it and so i think uh i'm i like to go and try to
0: uh make a dent
1: these, yeah do you know, a dent <laughs>
0: I well it's impressive. I mean having done it like I said just that one time. I I ha- I made a just dis- different decision <laughs> for me and thought it was um not not for me. Um so I'm impressed and I I you know people need to understand. I mean you're going through a lot to speak for the few who desperately need you and that's it's really a remarkable thing. So um hats off to you. Um okay. yeah, I um I often wonder I don't know if you ever do I think about these kids and i I you know I know it's a mixture of the culture and also stuff they've learned growing up you know from their own parents and I wish we had some way of determining how much is parenting versus the culture <laughs> I wish there was some study we could do to get my get our hands on that
1: well I wonder about that too uh, you think I think about all of these in uh, the many new years these really kind of irrational uh Hardline feminists I've met and then think, oh, well, they had children. Well, how did they raise their children? They've raised their girls, you know, to be more radical than they are, and their high school teachers, increasingly high school curriculum, is informed by this Mm -hmm. sort of uh, style of trauma feminism, or I don't know what to call it. Now, Uh, it's actually a sort of a fainting couch feminism because it's all about, you know, women being... um, you know, completely, not really wanting to be equal to men, but wanting to be protected from them. So yeah, there's right, these, right.
0: Uh, so I want to talk about this in relation to how everything started for you and how I knew about you originally. This is kind of interesting. So my very first book was published in 2004, and I quoted you at, in the first chapter of that book at the outset from, um, Who F- from Who Stole Feminism, which I think was the book you were most well known for at the time. And in that book, you made a distinction between equity feminism and gender feminism. And we have a clip in which you explain this difference, which is also from that same um, 1994 interview I mentioned earlier. So let's take a quick listen to that.
1: Could you sort of explain that so we get our terms An equity feminist, and Camille and I both are equity feminists, is you you want for women what you want for everyone. Fair treatment, no discrimination. Uh, A gender feminist, on the other hand, is someone like the current... uh, Uh, leaders in the feminist movement, Patricia Ireland and Gloria Steinem and Susan Faludi and uh, Eleanor Smeal, uh, they believe that women are trapped in what they call a sex-gender system, a patriarchal hegemony, that contemporary American women are in the thrall to men, to male culture. And it's so silly. It has no basis in American reality. No women have ever had more opportunities, more freedom, and more equality than contemporary American women. And at that moment, the movement becomes more bitter and more angry. Why are they so angry? Mm -hmm. Uh
0: So just to reiterate that for my audience, explain again the difference between an equity feminist, what you call an equity feminist, and a gender feminist. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love and life was good. Then somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less. To look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneBanker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneBanker.com. So just to reiterate that for my audience, explain again the difference between an equity feminist, what you call an equity feminist, and a gender feminist.
1: Equity feminists believe that, well, basically they want for women what they want for everyone. Basic fairness, liberty, dignity. It, it came to us through the European Enlightenment. It's, it's classical, liberal, mm-hmm. democratic uh, principles applied to women. And uh, it's a great American success story. Yet, if you're in a typical women's studies class, or heaven forbid, on online with a you know feminist blogger or Instagrammer, or have, worst of all, Tumblr feminists, they don't believe in that. They, they, they just don't believe in equality feminism because they think it's insufficient. It's naive to think that this system will ever allow women to ascend to power. And so they have a theory that we are captive to this oppressive system. It's called the sex-gender system. That was developed in the 1970s by some feminist philosophers. And they thought that women's oppression was systemic, that every institution bared the impress of patriarchy. You can't overthrow 10,000 years of patriarchy by changing a few laws and a few rules. You have to dismantle the system. So they've been busy doing that. Uh, forever so and you called it, those
0: that's gender and, uh, feminists yeah gender feminists so not equity but gender feminists now here's what's interesting that interview is 25 years old and of course nothing's changed with respect to with respect to this difference except that gender feminists have essentially won as far of, as far as making their way into the culture in fact in your friend danielle crittenden's book who i mentioned earlier is your podcast partner she wrote a book called What Our Mothers Didn't Tell Us, excellent book, which came out just five years after years, and she writes the following, quote, the students I interviewed had neither adopted nor rejected feminism. Rather, it had seeped into their minds like intravenous saline into the arm of an unconscious patient. They were feminists without knowing it. I actually quoted that in one of my later books, and I've never forgotten that statement because I thought that brilliantly summed up, certainly not only where we are today, but that was even 20 years ago, We're even more so that way, where the reason why, in my opinion, you can give me your thoughts on this, we know that most women don't use the word feminist anymore to define themselves. They don't like that. That's been sort of statistically proven that they don't use it. But that doesn't mean they don't think like a feminist, right? Or specifically like a gender feminist. Because exactly as Danielle wrote, that's how it's gotten into their, it's so gotten into the way of the world that they don't need to identify it as such anymore. It's just a given. It's almost like, and I've said this to other people, and I'm sure you you would say the same thing. It's like I might as well say, if you're going to say something against feminism today, you might as well be saying, "Let's bring back slavery." It's that it's that big of a deal of what you're saying.
1: It is. It's the it's in the air. It's the default mode, and students, um, you you risk being considered a crank if you question it. So, increasingly, I you have to be very careful because people will just think. Exactly, as you're saying, that it's like someone, you know, being a flat earther. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's a kind of a, a bait and switch because your young women are brought in just because, of course, women should be given dignity and equality and liberty as, as men and be equal under the law. But then they have another agenda, which is uh, about that we live in a patriarchal rape culture, that women are being systematically cheated out of their salaries, they're being forced to conform to patriarchal standards and beauty, which is causing massive deaths from anorexia nervosa, and they, they have a whole medley of oppression statistics. And nothing, in, in this system, nothing ever gets better. I have been hearing the same statistics coming from women's studies and gender theory for 30 years that you know, massive You know, one out of four women is raped, one out of three battered, one out of five forced into prostitution. No bearing on reality. It's all done through manipulation and, and advocacy statistics. You can't find serious sources that confirm those atrocities, but they stand by them and they teach them to young women. So yeah, a lot of young women growing up in the freest society with the, the greatest opportunity the most self-determining young women in history, they are burdened with these grim claims about their how hopeless the world is for them and their oppression. Yeah.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, so Phyllis used to say, my Aunt Phyllis used to say that all the time. We're going to talk about Mrs. America in just a little bit here. Um and I think most of my listeners know about that, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, she used to say that all the time. That was like basically the basis of her argument is simply that you have all the advantages in the world. If you want to take advantage of them, you can do it. And it was the most, it was so ironically more empowering to hear that message than how could it possibly be empowering to be told over and over that you're oppressed and that the system's rigged against you. How can they simultaneously think that a person on the receiving end of that is not going to see the disconnect between saying that that's empowering at the same time saying you're
1: oppressed. They they always are complaining, oh, there are not enough women in um, engineering and in computer science. And, in fact, in computer science, the numbers for many years were going down, down, down. I haven't been able to confirm this, but someone, uh, it was actually uh, uh, Steve Sasse and uh, Wendy William at uh, Cornell have found that women, young women, are increasingly discouraged from going into the sciences because they've heard about how terrible it is, mm-hmm. except that it's not. It's very welcoming, and the, and the best research shows that women are actually it, it, given preference. They're not held back and are discriminated against. That, that's been a, it's a manufactured uh, claim Of, that it's very, very hard to defeat these claims because they, again, you would be called a backlasher. And there's and they there's a huge sort of feminist network of organizations, mm-hmm. a vast network of oh, yeah. women's organizations, women's institutes, think tank. And now Melinda Gates oh, has given I billion know. Dollars, a billion dollars to sort of, you know, supercharge the National Women's Law Center and time's up. I'm, I don't know if we can we survive that i mean that's a lot of money that is a lot of money and this is this, why
0: and people don't understand that this is where the money's coming from because if you talk about someone like melinda gates you don't necessarily think she's a feminist um and if you think and the southern poverty law center doesn't have anything in it that would suggest that it's feminist well you'd have to be you and i to know that because of what we do so so it's an it seems innocuous and yet that's where the bulk of the power is coming from. And and then it get that's going back to this whole, it's, it becomes part of the culture, but you don't realize that actually behind it is a very calculated political and social move. Okay, so Christina, in light of what we're talking about with these feminist myths, I have a, su- a couple of um myths I want you to debunk for us here. You wrote an article in Time Magazine a few years ago entitled Six Feminist Myths, that will not die. And I'd like to focus on myths four, five, and six. Before I discuss the myths, um, really quickly, are you still doing the factual feminist?
1: I'm intending to, but I keep getting distracted. Okay, I started so... that series on YouTube to correct myths. Exactly. Uh, the, the, some that I just mentioned. And uh, my late mother, she was alive. When I started it, she said, you're doing this every week. How many myths can there
0: be? Oh my gosh. That is so funny. That is so funny. (laughs)
1: For The next, the rest of my life. Yeah, I was
0: just going to say my, my answer would be the complete opposite. Like, are you going to be alive long enough to cover them all? But are you, (laughs) but I'm, But whether or not you're continuing them, I just want people to know that it's just a wealth of information. If you go right now, even to YouTube and type in the factual feminist. there's already so much there that even if you didn't do another one, Christina, you've done an amazing job. It's awesome. So I just wanted to point that out to everybody before I um, discuss these myths. Okay. Myth number four, one in five college women will be sexually assaulted.
1: Well, this has been around for years. Sometimes it's one in four. Sometimes it's one in five. Sometimes they will say rape. Um, it does, it's just, there's a version of it. If you go to the, the best study we have, um, crime and sexual predation, it's probably uh, the Justice Department, their national crime survey, and they've actually looked at college students, specifically college-age people, they do not find 1 in 4. They find something like 1 in 40 or 1 in 45. Now, that is still too many, but it is qualitatively different from a 1 in 4. 1 in 4, is you're, it's the level of a war-torn Congo. And you would need uh, radical... Uh, they they'd probably need the National Guard or something. So what they what they do, and they, and they will... Say one. They, there are many re- researchers who will use this method. They have a very clever way of asking questions. They don't say, were you raped? Mm-hmm. They describe mm-hmm. situations and say, did this happen to you? And then they label it as rape and assault because the women often don't. They'll ask, were, were you ever raped? No. Did you ever? And then they'll say, did you ever have sex with a man because you were drunk? And they'll say, yes. Well, that is often counted as an assault or rape. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be, mm-hmm. but maybe not. Maybe both people mm-hmm. were under the influence. And if all instances of inebriated intimacy count as rape, then a lot of married people married- are screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon the pun. I think in that case, <laughs> I was assaulted on my honeymoon because we did have <laughs> champagne. I it mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So what they'll, that, what they tend to do a lot, really, is ask some reasonable questions, but then they'll put in one or two that are ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And if you do a study with some ambiguous questions to a non-scientific sample, um, very often there are samples where it's self-selected. People will hear about it, or it'll be announced on the Internet or through the college email system. So they'll select into it. That already gives you a bias sample, it gives you people who are more you know, care more about that topic. So maybe they have something more to say than, so you're not getting any kind of an objective truth about or insight into what's happening on campus, but they use those studies and they will generate very, very high numbers. You can, if you want an ap- epidemic of sexual assault, use
0: sure. those methods and yeah. you get it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Okay.
1: Myth number. But, f- I mean, I don't think if I thought this was going to help, Victims. If I thought this was going to help those who are uh, preyed upon in a college, then I might understand it. But it doesn't help anybody except a kind of growing industry of, uh, you know, sort of rape culture experts.
0: In fact, you know, Betsy um, Davos just passed that. uh, It wasn't just last week. The law that is going to allow men, specific, well, they don't say men, but you know that that's really what's going to end up happening because they're the ones who are mostly accused, but people to um, have due process on campuses now, right? What are you- and, being,
1: and, and she's being sued by the ACLU. I saw that. I saw that. Unbelievable. ACLU, the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, going against due process <laughs> and the presumption of innocence. And, it, make, and it, it doesn't help victims to take away... These fundamental protections that have been, you know, that are just an essential part of our democracy. Yeah, right. uh, Because of these false uh, panics. Mm -hmm. We've got panic over uh, Mm -hmm. harassment and abuse. and, And so you have feminists that are just ready to strip away basic liberties of freedom, free speech, academic freedom, as well as due process.
0: Absolutely. It's just a nightmare. It's a total nightmare. I'm just gonna be interested to see what comes of of this uh uh policy that she just put forth. It's gonna be interesting.
1: Especially since if, if Biden were if Biden were on a college campus <laughs> and just facing the terror he would be thrown out of school or worse. Put on the sex offender list. Well, he wouldn't get that, but but he could be th- easily thrown out of school by a, a college tribunal. Absolutely.
0: OK, myth number five, my favorite women. No, actually, my the myth number six is my real favorite. Women, uh, women earn 77 cents for every dollar a man earns for doing the same work.
1: Go. It's the factoid that will never die. They will never give it up. It has been refuted so many times, and even by feminist economists, it is not the case that women are being robbed by you know, unscrupulous employers. If an employer could pay women about 25% less than men for the same work. They'd what? only hire women. They'd only hire women. You'd immediately want to fire all the men and just have women. It doesn't work that way. You have to consider relevant factors that determine wages. How many hours a week does she work or he work? How, what did they study in, high, in college? What is their specialty? Their subspecialty, Because you could say, people will say, oh, no, even w- women engineers earn less than men engineers. Well, uh, that's true. But then when you look, you find that there are certain specialties in engineering, mm-hmm. nuclear, electric, I guess, petroleum engineering, that pays the highest. If you do environmental engineering, which is more women do that, it pays less. And, women are less likely to be in the highest paying uh, specialties of engineering it's the same in medicine you, they go into more often family medicine mm-hmm. pediatrics mm-hmm. less likely to be in the better, cardiology or anesthesiology women do value flexibility they are do appear not all of them i'm just talking about averages there is greater interest in uh caring and and nurturing fields you find far more women the pool of people who want to be early childhood educators nurses mm-hmm. social workers more women than men and those fields don't pay as well now the feminists and others will say well why don't those fields pay better but that's a different conversation That is
0: a different if we're talking, very different conversation if we're
1: talking about unscrupulous employers then it's not that women are being cheated it's that uh the kind of work women do isn't as valued I find that an interesting question I've never heard how we solve it I mean people have talked about uh, comparable worth and you know but that would mean like some government agency looking at every job and deciding you know you get the government setting wages or something and people have tried it companies have tried it it doesn't work very well but they they always want to make it seem like women are being cheated when in fact, it's possible that there's no cheating going on. It's just that men and women are, on average, somewhat different. Women, especially when they have children, tend to work less, and men, when they have children, tend to work more. Yep. And, uh, you know, that's. The evidence suggests that most of them want it that way. That's, as much as feminists yeah. want to tell us, I mean, they're very good at telling you what you want. Work- <laughs> Policies. Yeah, but <laughs> we have studies year after year of the Pew Research Centers and the researchers in the studied Western Europe show that on average, um, only about 20% of women are high powered careerists. Mm-hmm. 20% would like to be stay at home moms. About 60% are called in and out. Moms.
0: They move in and yeah. out of the workforce over the course of their lives, and, right?
1: It doesn't change much. And it seems to me to reflect what I see among my friends. I know women who would, would, are as, you know, just high octane careers, even if they had kids, some of them don't, but even if they did, they'd still want to be out there. But a lot of women are in the middle. I would consider myself uh, more in the middle. And when I had, when my son was young, I wanted to be with him and tried as much as I could. Uh, It wasn't always possible, but being a professor, you could take time off. Sure, sure. And of course the
0: problem with this my biggest issue with this, which goes back to that very first book that I wrote that I said I quoted you in, uh, my beef was that, it's still my beef 20 years later, is that that small percentage of what we'll call careerist women who are willing to literally devote their lives to just working and pretty much let everything else fall away, despite their being not the norm at all, they are overly represented In the ways in which we're getting our information, i.e. media, uh, schools, you see them and hear from them, and they are living those lives. They are the minority. They are the minority, but they look like the majority because you see them all the time. You hear from them. So it gives this misguided notion that they somehow represent the average person. Oh, I meant to throw Hollywood in there, too, which even though people know is this teeny 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 little microcosm of the country the power is just unbelievable and how it gets into especially young people's psyches from early on that it gives the perception that what you're seeing is the norm when in fact it's the complete reverse it's not the norm
1: absolutely and i think that it makes sense if you have a women's movement it should be one that reflects the desires and aspirations of women but we don't have that. We have a movement that's, uh, first of all, politically very, very far on the left. Very. And very intolerant of diversity. In, the, uh, if, if you are a traditionally religious woman, if you are pro, there are pro-life feminists. But they're not welcome. No, not at all. There are women who... Uh, it, it, it's... it's Thing is, they're just they're it's a very exclusive table. Most of us have not been divided. And <laughs> that's good. If, if you speak up, um, you are a, they have a word for you, a backlasher, yeah. traitor Yeah. And um closet misogynist or one case uh, someone this wasn't too long ago on Tumblr, someone referred to me it compared me and Margaret Thatcher to female impersonators. <laughs> because, <laughs> Christina, uh, don't
0: you know you're not a woman?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was amused because that person got called out by somebody else on summer because you're not supposed to use the phrase pejoratively. Mm. So I felt affirmed by that. But anyway, no, you you get called names. And it's so, it's really, you know, it it would be funny or it would be kind of curious if it weren't sad that so many young women only here, the one side, and nobody's telling them the truth about how important, for most of them, mm-hmm. all of them, how important uh, marriage and family is yep. for for most women, and how you probably should have your children earlier rather yep. than later. It gets very hard.
0: And I had, I had um, Jordan Peterson's daughter, Michaela, on last week, and actually, that's um, she's a mother. She's 28, and we, we talked a fair amount about that very thing.
1: Yeah. But how, how many times have you heard a feminist, you know, talk about issues like um, infertility in your, you know, oh no 30s and early 40s, and, you know, it would ruin their,
0: it would ruin everything. It would ruin their political agenda. I mean, if anything that's acknowledged on our side, if you want to call it that, uh, would completely ruin how they get up in the morning and have anything to do. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is, this is what they live for. And acknowledging the truth will undermine their goal. Okay, the last myth is, this is kind of a big one, men are the privileged sex.
1: Yep. It's a myth. It's a myth. It, it's created on uh, simply mountains of misinformation, misinformation. Yeah, right. Uh, if you look at American society, you look at, Overall, how the men are faring, how the women are faring, it's a complicated mix of benefits and burdens for each sex. Do men have certain privileges? Yes, and so do women. Increasingly, it looks to me as though women are pulling ahead in terms of advantages. Fundamental metrics of well-being, education, women are now far more likely to go to college, and this is across... Race, class, lines, you find ethnicities, you find that young women are more likely to do well in high school. To, they, they dominate the honor societies, valedictorians, almost all girls, far more likely to go to college, to stay in college. And now more women than men get masters and PhDs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's no end in sight. Women are. One uh, statistician, only partly uh, in in jest, said that if things continue the way they are going, by the year you know 2068, the last man will graduate from college. There will be no more men. Now, it's not going to go that way. I, I'm sure, but it's not. It's not uh, seen as a problem. People are kind of aware of it, but every, every, there are dozens, hundreds of women's groups and their job is, they have experts every day sort of looking at every uh, policy and every practice to see if there's a disparate impact for girls. And if they find one, Mm -hmm. fewer girls are are going into uh, physics, that becomes a major issue. The fact that fewer boys are going to college at all, that's not on the, anybody's map. Okay, now,
0: so this is literally what I work on every week, pretty much, um, in my writing. I have to tell you, I'm going to say something that's that's obviously very politically incorrect, but one of the biggest issues with exactly what you just described that nobody ever talks about is that what we know about these, and I'll call them just for the sake of argument, overeducated women. That's not to say that if you have a a higher degree, that's a bad thing. Let's just say we have a nation of overeducated women. The reason why I'm using the word over is that what we also know is that 10 years in, they are notorious for pulling back or dropping out, which I'm all for. That's all great because of family. But my point is you're how do I say this? I can say oh, I can yeah. say it here because it's my show. We're educating, we're over educating the wrong sex. <laughs> because <laughs> as we said before, as we pointed out, women when they get married, women pull back, men step up. And that's right. human nature. It's never gonna change. That's male and female nature. Well, if we know that, then we're doing everything backwards in pouring all of our efforts. Into encouraging women to stay in school for ten years and not caring about whether the men go to college or not. That's the that's at the
1: core of the problem right there. It is, but no one is allowed somehow to discuss these things. And if you if you look at just the long term impact on your workforce you at go. all levels, yes. To, to, Neglect the education of boys for one thing you are neglecting really the the future, just the future of your society to function because Men are still doing a lot of the technical jobs. There's and there's still armies of men that Are just making things run if you're mm-hmm. something breaks down in a building in a city and, You know men come in and repair it women haven't moved into those jobs they are overwhelmingly in the caring and helping professions and then some women are in those jobs, but oh, it's overwhelmingly men and we're not educating them. This professor at McGill that saw this group of boys who were just listless and sitting around and she organized a little club where they could build things and she was so shocked because she realized they had never held tools before and they mm. they were fascinated and then they were they became very good at it, but they hadn't had hammers and screwdrivers and drills, and they'd been withheld. And she said, the, Young males, these are nature's tinkerers, oh, you know, yeah. and, and we've deprived a whole generation of young men sort of access, and we're obsessed with getting girls. To be the tinkerers, and some of them want to be, but most don't. No, you can't even bully them into it. No, they won't do no. it. I've talked to people that work at uh, vocational schools, and they're very upset at these schools because the girls tend to go into health professions or cosmetology, and the boys are the welders and the you know carpenters. So they they have this. They want to have. Uh, non-trads, non-traditionals. You get lots of credit and more money if you can get your non-trad mm. store up. And she says we we do everything to get the girls to go into you know being electricians and and welders and we can get them to do it and then they end up you know yeah. coming in saying I don't want to do it. You know, it's I'm- so
0: exhausting trying to fight Mother Nature, isn't it, Christina? <laughs> <laughs> It goes on and on and I don't know. Let's see who's going to win this battle. Okay. Let's Um, I'm going to switch gears now to talk about Mrs. America. So I know you've seen, I think you've seen all the way through. Weren't you given a lot? Le-
1: oh, yes. I've seen all the way. Okay. Through. It's worse and worse. <laughs> oh no. I
0: want to talk about that for a minute. Okay. So real quickly, I think most people know this cause they follow me on Facebook and I've, I've posted a fair amount about it, but real quickly, Mrs. America is the new series on Hulu it's on every Wednesday night for say, the total of nine uh, episodes, I believe. And we're on seven this week. And it tells the story of the movement to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment and the unexpected backlash led by Phyllis Schlafly, who, as it happens, is my aunt. So this was really interesting. I read one Google review. You did a podcast on this yourself on the factual feminist, which I saw, which was great. And we've covered and I think you have a piece coming out, you said, and we've covered how this series is doing in terms of being factually correct or not as the case may be. And certainly there are things that are, and uh, I think they're actually doing really well showing on the feminist side myself. I don't know if you agree with that. It's the part about Phyllis that they get so wrong. But at any rate, one Google review, one gal said, quote, although we might never know what Phyllis actually thought, kind of an important thing. Kate Blanchett achieves the impossible by showing how deeply conflicting of a person she was. Her slightest eye gestures and face expression convey so much meaning. And I pulled that out to show how brilliantly powerful Hollywood is because even though the opening of each episode has a little phrase there on the screen that says, some of the, you know, this is taken from. Um, a real life event obviously in the 1970s but some events or some people have been fictionalized or whatever but of course the watcher the viewer has no idea which one what is true and what is isn't. no clue so when we, so this person who wrote this actually thinks that that description of my aunt Phyllis which by the way is completely baseless and she was the complete opposite of a conflicted person and she did not have eye gestures and face expressions that showed power on one side and being conniving and then something else on the other like none of that is even remotely her not even remotely true not even remotely true but they don't know which is true and which false so this is an example of a viewer coming away assuming that that's accurate and right. that's how that's how hollywood does its damage that's the part that makes me nuts because people do believe it, even if they think they don't, or I don't really get affected by that stuff. You know, they say, well, yes, you do. There's no way not to. Not only that,
1: but several journalists and critics have come forward just, uh, they're falling over themselves <laughs> to express their adoration for this program and how accurate it is. So Joe, there's someone called Joanna Robertson, She's at Vanity Fair. She has a whole podcast every week with each episode. And just last week, she said, there's really almost nothing in the show that hasn't been meticulously fact-checked and (gasps) sourced to reality. She was just exultant. Then the Smithsonian Magazine, which is the official publication of the Smithsonian Institution, they declare it to be real history with only the standard dramatic license. (gasps)
0: I didn't see those. Meanwhile, the producer, Davi Waller, has already said very forthrightly that she did not consult any family members to get the. Well, it was to get because she didn't want it to mess with her uh, her narrative. But she claimed she claimed that it was somehow going to make them more objective if they didn't talk to the family members to find out about. (laughs) Now, don't tell me they didn't talk to these feminists, the ones that they're showing on the other side and that those people weren't involved please one person at this preview magazine meredith blake wrote like you said that mrs america takes some liberties some liberties it acknowledges particularly when it comes to private conversations behind closed doors and then she said and but it offers a necessarily subjective take on highly polarizing figures such as schlafly a necessarily subjective take well why would it be necessarily subjective and that it simultaneously be an accurate representation. You have to get the information
1: well, from know, the people. It's They followed a formula that, in fact, many it is a long tradition of historical fiction where you just make it up. You know? <laughs> and that would be fine. Then enjoy it. Just realize it has no bearing on reality, very little bearing on reality, except that you have all of these journalists who obviously are taking it seriously. So we do have to be concerned that it... And and I and others have written to show. Did you talk on your podcast about the debate that was rigged? How they changed the debate? Because, I did
0: on my. I did a bonus episode on this on the series. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, keeps saying, "Well, we did take liberties with the dialogue, but every event and debate," she said. She told this to Esquire. These are accurate. <laughs> That's just not true. She she took a debate where that Phyllis won. Yep. And, it, and reversed it, reversed it. She reversed it and made made it, Phyllis was great, and the woman uh, Brenda Fagan Fausto was humiliated. So she reversed it and made Phyllis humiliated. Anyway, it's 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 confection, it's invention, bordering on hallucination from liberal writers. These
0: are just their fantasies. I know this fantasies
1: revenge fantasies, but I, they they probably aren't even aware of that. They probably just don't know any Christians or conservatives right. in, the, in the world. And so the, the, these are just their speculations.
0: They can't make heads or tails of it because you'd really have to have a very um, open, non-ideological frame of mind in order to understand Phyllis. Because she was very unique and there was nothing inconsistent about her at all. It's just that they couldn't make heads or tails of how she could exist. That's really what it, like how could somebody like this exist? How could you be so proud of family life and marriage um, and simultaneously be highly educated at same kind of schools that they were right. And be so um, proficient and good at what you did Despite having six kids and supporting that instead of the left wing, you know, policy, so they can't get their head around. Like that's why that one gal in the show, um, Jill, I forget her last name, but she's a feminist Republican. Oh,
1: yeah. Well,
0: of course they love her because really all a Republican feminist is—they're on the exact same page on all the social cultural things that matter. The only difference is that a Republican's going to have a different way of spending. <laughs> right? It's going to be a money issue, strictly. That doesn't get in the way of their um, ideology. But one of the interesting things I think that you guys, when you were talking about this in your podcast when you were discussing it the other day, so one of the things that Danielle had said in your podcast when you were discussing it last week that I thought was interesting was where she's saying what's happened in the last 20 years has been so huge that so many young men and women are confused that we've lost the language to help them. And what interested me about that was it made me go back to thinking about what we were talking about at Oberlin college where you, and, and it reminded me of my own experience that I had had that one that I told you about is that I was trying to explain it to people. They're so far gone on the language that there's, it's to the point where you really can't have any um, coherent meeting of the minds because there's no language as Danielle pointed out to help them understand the truth because they're so bogged down in feminist ideology that that it's, it's, it's impossible to have any kind of reasonable conversation about it, which was not the case. I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, 30 years ago.
1: I think that's very true. And it's occurred to me that we may have lost a generation of young, you know, educated young women who learned things and became, um, you know, they became persuaded of a set of ideas that prevented them from learning anything else. They are stuck with this prism, and they view the world through the, you know, sort of critical gender theory, yeah. all terms of power and um, privilege, and they have no capacity to think It's it sort of Um, for an original thought. Yeah, critical thinking. No critical thinking. And when you try to argue with them, they immediately will become, it'll just resort to name-calling. Right. Because they are so captive to this theory, it can't be falsified. So anyone that's questioning it is by definition heretical. It's a closed epistemological system you can't break through.
0: So the irony, of course, of that all, Christina, is that they're not educated at all, are they? They're not educated. They're the, they have their degree, but they're not educated.
1: And it's interesting. You don't find If you look back a few generations ago, you know, we had these towering figures, these intellectual women, Mm -hmm. Mary Mm -hmm. McCarthy, Joan Didion, holding forth. And now you don't, you, I don't see it. I mean, I see just, they're all say, many of them saying the same thing. Some of them saying it more eloquently than others. But you look at the writers now that we have at the New Yorker; it, they're writing in Esquire, they're writing in, in in the New York Times, and it's slogans. Yep. Uh, Orwell had this idea that, uh, in the he write about this in the politics of the English language, how there are these these words that people, these cliches, that do your thinking for you. Yeah, yeah. There's so much of that going on, using slogans instead of thought, and I, I just, I see more and more of it. And I just, I can't, the, here's one thing that bothers me though. And I wonder what you think about this. Why aren't there more women like us? So that is, <laughs>
0: um, so here's my theory on that. That's really interesting that you say that because I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, and when we came here, I mean,
1: I, I'm a still a sort of a fallen liberal. My DNA right. is hippie, you know, protester and all of that. But I don't feel I've changed. I never, I was always skeptical and questioning things and not given to, you know, accepting the explanation. And I, and I just brought that to feminism. I brought the same skepticism that I brought to every
0: everything in my life
1: as a... As a um, thinker, as a thinker. And so
0: I, my, my only two thoughts are that one, I think it is by nature easier to be lazier about any big issues In other words, that people are so busy leading their lives that they just, they don't live like you and I. They don't do the kind of work, research, writing, you know, they're they're doing other things. And so they don't have the information. But even if they did, I'm not sure, even if they had it in front of them, I'm not sure their heart is in it enough to what you'd have to do to learn the truth about what you're being fed. I think it's so much easier to follow the script than it is to not follow it. I think that's that's the only thing I keep coming back to as to why there aren't more people like you and me. And then the other piece of that well no, I guess that goes hand in hand with that. Just just the idea that it's so much easier to go along and get along than to think outside the box. It's, it's a lot more effort to it. It's a different kind of life, I think, Christina. I mean, my life doesn't look like, and I don't know about yours, maybe it's different in D.C. You probably have a lot more people like you, but I'm in the Midwest, and um, I don't lead what I would consider a typical life, I, a little unusual, and um, that has to do with my background and my interests, but I want to speak for those people who are too busy that's basically what I do. Why I do what I do. They're too busy living their lives, but they know what they think. They know what they feel. They know it's bullshit, but they need somebody to speak for them. And that's where you and I come in. And I'm happy to do that.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to do it. And I think I I think you you you're right. And I think there's probably probably a lot of women, even very you know educated women, women in in universities, teach, who go along. They don't pay that much attention to what they're really saying. It just sort of sounds like the language of of fairness and equality. They don't look too carefully. And right now the news the way it is is that there are a lot of horror stories about, for example, about me too and false accusations. But those are mostly in the conservative press. They until this Joe Biden case came up, they weren't aware of how you know, easy it was to, to accuse someone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this, this idea believe women, they, I kind of like love they- it
0: when they eat their own Christina. <laughs> I know. It's-, it's kind of enjoyable. It's <laughs> oh my gosh. I could go on forever with you. We're going to have to wrap it up, but this has been really awesome. I so appreciate your coming on. Um, I look forward to reading your piece on, um, Mrs. America and thanks for doing a podcast on it. That was great and um, tell people where you want them to go to find out more about your work. Where's your primary place to go?
1: Well, I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, but you can also find me on YouTube, The Factual Feminist. Hopefully I'll be making more, but there are already about 60 very short videos. they are five or six minutes correcting this. And then um, my podcast, The Fence planners.
0: Great podcast. We uh, talked about that at the opening. Oh, so. Follow me on Twitter yeah there you see, go oh yeah she's big twitter she's a big social media way bigger than me i'm she's all into that i'm i'm not quite there that's great so you'll you'll definitely find her on twitter I'm a awesome twitter writer, you are
1: I'm <laughs> you are that's I great i I don't insult people i try to reason with people it's not easy on twitter not on that forum it's not i'm impressed <laughs>
0: yeah. well thank you so much Christine, for coming on it was great to see you again and hopefully we will chat soon again lovely seeing you And that brings us to the email of the day. This one's from Claire. Hi, Suzanne. I just wanted to say thank you for all the support you provide couples struggling today. I always read your posts and I'm currently reading your free ebook and I'm planning on following it this week. I love your point in the book about how a man wouldn't date a lady with, quote, bitchy characteristics as that's not attractive. I always said I don't want to be a nagger, but sometimes I struggle to avoid nagging as I find it hard understanding why certain habits are so automatic for me. And although I've told my partner certain things are important to me in the past, he just forgets to do them. But I know their brains work differently. Why do men find it so hard to remember to do the things that please us? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, So I've written about this a fair amount, but I just wanted to answer Claire's question because I think it's very pertinent and relevant for a lot of people. Men, we know this about men. They have what we call single focus, where they focus very intensely on one thing at a time. They're very linear. Their brains are very linear that way. So that when they're in, they're sort of all in, and they have a natural capacity to screen out the things around them. Now, this is the complete opposite of the way men, women's brains operate. We're I mean, complete opposite. We cannot do anything without seeing a bunch of other things that need to be done simultaneously. And, of course, this gets into the whole multitasking conversation where women want to know why their husbands can't multitask as though multitasking is somehow superior when, in fact, technically multitasking is not. um, There was actually a book written called The Myth of Multitasking, which is a great book that shows you're not actually multitasking, you're switch tasking, you're moving from one thing to to another, but you're never giving it your complete attention. And so at the end of the day, you end up doing a lot of things sort of half-assed, which means you're not really getting them done at all. So there are some things you could multitask, like talking on the phone and doing the dishes or what have you. But there are other tasks that require so much brain power that if you're trying to do them at the same time, you're actually not getting anything done at all. And that gets into women being very overwhelmed and then complaining that men don't do that. So all of which is my long way of saying it's actually beneficial the way men's brains work. And there's a lot to be said for honing in on one thing and doing it really well. That's why when you pummel your husband with a list of tasks, he's not going to be able to remember them. The best you can do is hopefully, first of all, not give him so many to do anyway at one time or in general, but write it down. This is something I've actually done with my husband that I've learned the hard way is to write it down and um, and wait and be patient. And you're much more likely to have those things accomplished. I mean, he's happy to do them for you if you approach him nicely and you don't and you're not commanding about it and you don't give him a time limit and, and so on and so forth. So and being more understanding that he can only do one thing at a time. This is something that took me quite a long time, actually, to figure out. But I've, I'm glad to say I've finally gotten it down. And um, that it's been that understanding of the male versus the female brain that was really instrumental for me. So I hope that helps Claire and anyone else who's listening. That ends this hour of the Suzanne Venker Show. Don't forget to tune in next week when we talk with San Francisco psychiatrist Abalash Gopal and his beautiful French wife Margot Lauren about an impressive article they wrote together for Psychology Today entitled "Reviving Romeo." about reclaiming male identity in the age of toxic masculinity. If you want to read that article ahead of time before next week, you just Google reviving Romeo and it should come right up at the top. Also, make sure to continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in the Suzanne Benker Show in the Facebook search bar and you'll find it. Please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or a comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the SuzanneBankerShow.com. Thanks for listening,
1: everyone. Have a great week.